0: Hello, you hear me? Yes. Okay. Very good. All right.
1: Um, just testing volume. How is that? Sounds good. Uh, All right, cool. If it gets too loud, uh, let me know if I lean into the mic too much or something.
0: Okay. All right. Stand by. We'll go ahead and go live. <clears throat> Hope this works you <laughs> Welcome back to Beyond Classified, part of the Forbidden Knowledge News Network. I'm Chris Matthew, and with me is the Kennedy assassination extraordinaire, Corey Hughes. Welcome back, Corey. How are you doing tonight?
1: Good. Thank you for having me on.
0: Uh, After this live stream, the episode will be available exclusively on our social media network for free, of course. The link uh, in the description uh, will get you there, or go to ForbiddenKnowledge.News to sign up. Now, tonight, Corey is back with a new presentation that delves into the massive tangled web that is the Kennedy assassination. Uh, Tonight, it's about a man uh, supposedly named Jean-Pierre Lafitte, who was a key player in the plot that... uh, that most people have never heard about. And of course, uh, this presentation will be another piece of a huge puzzle that is the assassination. Uh, Cory's also writing a book and he's pu- uh, published multiple presentations on this network. If you wanna get caught up on some of this information. All of his presentations are on the channel, on the podcasts. Uh, I'll also leave the links in the description here. Uh, So tonight, Corey, where do we start with the story of Jean-Pierre Lafitte?
1: Okay, so I'm just gonna let you know right up front that he is one of two people in the assassination who, despite the amount of uh, research I've done on him, is still a mystery. Um, I really have not uh, finalized any kind of opinions on Jean-Pierre Lafitte who I haven't even determined if that is a real name or not uh, as I have come across uh, contradictory information. Uh, I've read some reports on him that say it's his real name. I've read other reports that say it's an alias he uses when he's in the US. So who knows? He could be a complete construct uh, but as I've learned Many of the uh, players who are well known uh, to everyone uh, also have alternate identities and, and, and uh, body doubles and they use multiple aliases. And so Jean-Pierre Lafitte could be somebody that we all are already familiar with, but don't realize it, which might possibly be the case. Um, so uh, as usual, this presentation is uh, not as organized as I'd like it to be. Um, It covers a wide range of uh, aspects of Jean-Pierre Lafitte's life or supposed life. Because remember, this could be 100% fiction. We just don't know. There's nothing to substantiate it. Um, I have some news articles uh, that I found that I will show you that are authentic, that proves uh, somebody was um, alive in the 1950s and 60s using this name uh, in the capacity of being an agent for uh, at least the FBI. So let me go ahead and share screen and we will get started.
0: Yeah, and I just want to say when it comes to, uh, you know, being organized, <laughs> you spend most of the day researching this stuff because this, this is such a huge case and there's so many different rabbit holes to go down. It's like a giant massive wet, uh, spider web that that's so tangled and it's so hard to get to even the bottom of, you know, the first section that you start looking at, and then once you move on to that section, uh, the whole next part is in a huge enigma, and it's a huge, it's, you know, a huge case to unravel, and, you know, you're doing a great job uh, so far with all the information you've come across.
1: Well, the last couple slides I have in here, the last four or five slides that I put together, I put together, and they steer away from Jean-Pierre Lafitte a little bit, but it really highlights what I keep harping on the most, is that uh, the relationships that these people have are more important than what they do. Uh, when you come to understand the relationships between these people, the, what they do, it really becomes, you know, the, the, you, you can see the lattice work of this network of CIA, mafia, Mossad, you know, um, Corsican mafia. You can see this big tangled web. And to me, that is the most fascinating part because you come to realize that, and we'll, we'll touch on this uh, a little bit later on, but there, isn't, there is no good guys and bad guys. They are all good at times and all bad at times. Um, and it's a weird intertanglement of that, but Jean-Pierre Lafitte uh, came to my attention through the work of Hank Alborelli, uh, probably a little more than a year ago. And, uh, Hank has a new book coming out. Uh, Hank passed away. Actually, he wrote this book and then he died. You know, I think I've heard that before. Um, <laughs> <You> <laughs> but, did a lot. Uh, um he actually, um, got a hold of Jean-Pierre Lafitte's, uh, notebooks, And he wrote the book Coup in Dallas, which is set to come out next month, um, which is completely derived from the notebooks of Jean-Pierre Lafitte. And so I had hastily concluded, uh, because I had seen multiple uh, inferences to Jean-Pierre Lafitte having been the shooter on the mole, that I made the biggest mistake any researcher can ever make. And I just assumed those guys got it right. You know, I assumed the references that I'd seen uh, calling Jean-Pierre Lafitte the shooter on the knoll. I I trusted their judgment enough to just take their word for it, and I was dead wrong. So never do that. Uh, (laughs) I don't care how many people say somebody did something. uh, If it just doesn't feel right, uh, definitely keep looking, because that was a big mistake on my part. Um, So Jean-Pierre Lafitte, um, he came into the limelight, let's go ahead and read this. Jean-Pierre Lafitte was brought into the limelight by Hank Alborelli when he connected Lafitte to the murder of Frank Olson, a CIA scientist who seemingly had regrets about his CIA involvement, voiced his concerns, and was subsequently dosed with LSD and then murdered. Uh, Hank Alborelli literally wrote the book on Frank Olson. Uh, His research is incredible. Uh, Frank Olson, if you have any slides on it. uh, No, um, but I'll come back to that. Let me talk about Frank Olson just for a second. Um, he was a uh, CIA scientist. He had gotten involved with uh the MK Ultra project, but the MK Ultra Project really, the mind control stuff, that was only a part of it. It was mostly connected to their uh the CIA's bioweapons program. And so he had been involved with that and he had uh, been involved with creating bioweapons and he had second thoughts about it, he felt guilty about it. And then when uh he voices concerns, they basically uh whacked him. Um We will talk more about that in detail here coming up, but um, let's just go over Jean-Pierre Lafitte uh, and his life, or his alleged life, or what we know or think we know about him. Uh, Lafitte is believed to have been born in Louisiana in either 1902 or 1907. Uh, At the age of seven, Lafitte and his mother, um, it was believed that she was a Louisiana madam, uh, relocated to Paris and then Marseille, France. Shortly after, Lafitte's mother disappears. Uh, Lafitte is said to be raised by the Marseille criminal underground. See, that to me is a little bit too Hollywood. It's a little too picturesque. It's a little too spooky of a detail to be in someone's background. I have a feeling that that is not true. Um, although something like it might've happened. Um, who knows if Lafitte's mother, um, they say she disappeared. It's really suspected that she was murdered by a John. Um, you know, it sounds like a real story, but you know, providing explicit concrete detail to bullshit is what these guys do. Um, And then, uh, so yeah, so when he's on the streets, he becomes an associate of the Corsican Mafia, must be at a very
0: young age. Now, another fun fact is we, uh, down in Louisiana, where I'm from here, we have a very famous pirate that uh, used to be around here called John Lafitte. And you've had uh, trouble with your uh, searches in finding this John Lafitte because you keep coming up with the pirate. I fucking hate that pirate. I fucking hate that guy.
1: <laughs> I swear. Like so many times, I think I found something good and it was, no, it's about the fucking pirate. Yeah, fuck that pirate. And also there's a there's a, like a restaurant in New Orleans called Lafitte's. And so when there's, I'm going- yeah,
0: There's a lot of uh, places around here uh, named after the pirate Lafitte. Right.
1: Okay. So when I'm going through the Kennedy research, especially the garrison stuff, <laughs> I, you know, I try to search for the word Lafitte's and I get uh, 50 references and like 47 of them are to- uh, you know, the restaurant. So it's, it's, it's very frustrating dealing with that kind of shit. Um, so in 36 or 37, Lafitte comes uh, back to the US, although the authorities uh, officially claimed he didn't arrive till 52. That's because he was <laughs> going out dealing drugs and whacking people for him. Uh, in 1940, Lafitte becomes an associate of Vito Genovese. Uh, through the 40s, Lafitte was involved in drug trafficking between France and the US, um, otherwise known as the French Connection, a very uh, well-known um, path for heroin to make its way from Saigon to France, to the U.S. through our good friends, Meyer Lansky, Begin, and all those scumbags. Um, His main associates were Henri Derincourt and Francois Spirito. Uh, Those guys were big shots in the Corsican mob. During World War II, Lafitte joined the OSS working in Nazi-occupied France and Belgium. That's some shit right there. The Nazi-occupied part is really what kind of um, caught my attention um, because to me, he's obviously you'll as you'll see as we unfold more of this information he was kind of a shared asset and after the war um he was in direct contact with Otto Skorzeny and part of the Skorzeny assassination network um so yeah i wonder what he was doing over there in nazi-occupied france and belgium whose side was he on um lafitte meets george white in 1948 uh white is former fbn oss and now cia working for james angleton george white of course the head of mk ultra by 1951, Lafitte is working for White under Project MK Ultra, and by 53, Lafitte is tasked to kill Frank Olson, who was the uh, scientist I was just talking about. Uh, Olson, a scientist. Attempts to leave the agency. Lafitte throws him from a New York hotel window. It is believed Olsen was involved in CIA biological weapons. In 2017, Showtime produced a six-episode series about Olsen's death entitled Wormwood. They failed to identify Lafitte as the killer.
0: Again, now I know the information about Lafitte is scattered. Where did you find most of the information that uh, you're presenting right now?
1: Um, A lot of this is from Hank Alborelli's book, uh, The Lobster, uh, which is a pretty good kind of underground magazine. They've done some features on Lafitte, uh, mostly in reference to the drug trafficking. And I have found a couple posts on various forums and a handful of uh, miscellaneous uh, pages from books uh, on the internet, a lot of contradictory information. You know, it seems like most of his life is so exciting. Uh, like He was going you know, like a modern-day pirate, you know, it was uh, it's, it's crazy when you read about what his life uh, allegedly entailed, and it makes you wonder who guys like this actually work for, you know, because they're good guys, they're bad guys, they work for the U.S., they work for Israel, they work for whoever the fuck needs them, right? They're free agents. They kind of do what they do. And, um, you know, where do their loyalties lie?
0: Can you say, little- he, you know, his life was like a pirate? You know, I know how the CIA loves to make their uh, their programs and all their, their operations kind of dramatic, like a, a sort of a <laughs> plot for a movie. I'm yeah. wondering if, it, if they, have, they had any uh, connections to Jean Lafitte, the pirate in mind, when coming up with this, you know, Jean Lafitte type of, uh, you know, Person that they're presented. well, and um,
1: Lafitte claims to be descendant of um, the, of the pirate Lafittes. There is really no proof for that, and there's a little evidence against that, which kind of would indicate that he's a, a braggart or uh, this whole thing is just fiction. Uh, You know, so many times in Kennedy, I got caught up in storylines that I didn't realize were total bullshit. And I just wasted my time. And the real story was like not half as exciting. Right. Uh, So, yeah, this could be pure fiction. We just don't know. There's no way to back it up. Uh, We do know Lafitte was a real person. Um, We do know that uh, Lafitte has a child because Al Borelli went and met with uh, with, uh, Lafitte's son, I believe. Uh, and I believe that's where he got those uh, those books from. So he was a real person. His son's name is Lafitte, I think. Um, you know, when you start studying CIA and spy craft and all this stuff, you hard, it's hard sometimes to know what's what. And it often depends on uh, the interconnection with other people, places, activities, right? So uh, if you have one piece of information about Lafitte, how do you know whether it's bullshit or not? Well, cause you might have a statement from somebody else, um, you know, unwittingly cor- uh, that corresponds to that piece of information you have, right? So some- you always need like an- another angle to kind of intersect and give the, the idea support. Um, you can't read one thing and be like, okay, I believe that. So there's always gotta be something that corresponds even if that thing over there is crazy too, right? Uh, cause th- this whole thing is crazy, history is crazy.
0: Yeah, and all we have to go off of is the documents that come from these, you know. Right, right, the right. The same people that are, that and are, are the perpetrating. That, and the thing that gets me is that um,
1: with documents being released today, 50 years after the fact, the people who, who who hid documents or made them classified, they're fucking dead, all right? So you've got somebody going through documents today who might not understand the implications of the things that they're releasing, Okay. The, the documents released in 2017 were goddamn gold mine. And for reasons that most people will never know. Uh, but the corresponding information, uh, supporting relationships that I found in the 2017 document dumps under Trump were just fucking great. Great. I mean, the case wouldn't have been solvable, I don't think, without some of those documents. I should probably do a show on those specific documents. So I could name a half a dozen documents that just are absolutely essential, that are really nothing more by themselves, they're nothing but they're supporting to other things, which is like more important. Right. Um, So sometime after the war, he hooked up with George Hunter White, a buccaneering agent of the Federal Narcotics Bureau who would provide plenty of work for him. White had free access to LSD in the early 50s and was dosing unwitting subjects left, right, and center in the many safe houses he ran for the FBN and other agencies. (laughs) George White was a monster. He really was. Um, He he, uh, released an aerosol can of LSD and subways in New York. Uh, whether that was an assignment or for fun, who knows? I don't think there was a difference for him. Uh, Lafitte's career as a non-attributable agent for various government agencies is described in great detail by Alberelli and includes the remarkable story of Joe Valacci, the mafia songbird who had murdered John Joseph Sop in the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary Yard. The U.S. attorney there had sought the death penalty, but Volace, through a go-between, got a message concerning his predicament through to Robert Morgenthau, who was then the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Well, as it turns out, that go-between was Jean-Pierre Lafitte himself. And uh, yes, if if you haven't seen it yet, uh, Wormwood on Netflix is, um, it's actually, it's pretty well done. Uh, It really dramatizes the whole thing. It takes a 10-minute story and makes it like six hours uh but it is it is good um i actually when i saw it uh, i reached out to uh frank olson's son who runs a website where he was seeking information uh you know just if you know anything let me know kind of thing it was a so i reached out to him and i gave him all kinds of information and we discussed um israel's role in the assassination and uh, a whole bunch of other things it was actually pretty cool so uh, he didn't know a lot of things that I thought were pretty common knowledge about Kennedy and uh the connection through Lafitte. <sighs> okay, so I'll talk a little bit about uh Frank Olson. Um he uh they went to a meeting November 1953 at Deep Creek Lake, uh, and there were several other uh scientists there. He went with a group, and uh the group was dosed. Um and uh, he began to display strange behavior, extreme anxiety, and feelings of paranoia. The loose cannon was now ricocheting about like a pinball in a pinball machine. He was taken up to New York to see CIA approved Dr. Abramson, who seemed to have realized that, that there was going to be no easy fix here. Then it was decided that Olson should be taken away to a secure CIA approved asylum, and the forcible removal of Olsen from the Hotel Statler was entrusted to two goons. Um, so basically he gets dosed out in a cabin in the woods. He's freaking out. So... Um, he then the next day, he's uh, he's freaked out, but he goes home. They realize that he's, uh, you know, kind of uh, not really. He's not down with that. He he's, he knows he got dosed. He's a little pissed off, um, and he wants out. And they can't let that happen. So they uh, put him up in a hotel in New York, the Statler Hotel, and he's supposed to see this um, this CIA shrink. And so then uh, it says here, things got out of hand in the hotel room and Olsen was precipitated out the window with the goons probably thinking they'll thank us for this. Indeed, they might even have been instructed to do the same. The two goons were Pierre Lafitte and Francois Sparito. So uh, this was uncovered by Hank Alborelli. Um, Hank Alborelli uh, interviewed Pasteur, who was uh, an employee of the Statler. And he recalled a mysterious Frenchman, Jean Martin, who worked at the Statler the night of Olsen's death. Alborelli jr determined that uh he was actually a cia agent named pierre lafitte uh, who had ties to organized crime and did dirty work for the agency he and francois spirito a heroin trafficker and ex-nazi collaborator who had just been released from an atlanta penitentiary according to Alborelli, snuck in and out of the hotel room through a side door they then struck frank in the back of the head with a baseball bat or some other object smashed the window and threw frank out the window to make his death look like a suicide a cryptic unsigned letter sent to Steve Sirocco on April 17, 2000, from a former CIA employee who, quote, had the luck of the draw to deal directly with Olson's demise, said that Mr. Olson's fateful flight was ventured on wings bestowed by Enfant Terrible Lafitte and Le Grand Lidio Spirito. They are French. Um, so that's from the Lobster Number 59, uh, summer 2010. So you can this this already has like the feeling of. Uh, you know, something spooky and mysterious, right? They have these, like, uh, these French nicknames that are all, you know, like they're out to get you. Um, Spirito had been dubbed the father of modern heroin trafficking. He was born in Sicily in 1898 and spent his formative years in Marseille. Uh, the 1970 French film Borsalino II was largely based on his life, uh, but left out much of his less pleasing side, such as his Nazi collaboration during the war. Uh, everybody collaborated with the Nazis during the war. Little secret. Uh, Just before the Olsen business, Spirito had been released from Atlanta's federal penitentiary, where he had been serving a sentence for drug trafficking. Less than three weeks later, he was picked up by US Immigration and Naturalization Service and deported back to France, where he died in 1967. Uh, Spirito had known Lafitte since about 1939, uh, and they had first met in Marseille. It was the Lafitte who engaged him for the job. Yeah, so when he was in uh, prison in Atlanta, they—that uh, was one of the prisons that uh, MK Ultra program had used to be to dose um, some of the prisoners, and he was one of them. And he wasn't too happy about it when he got out. But yeah, they experimented on him. Um, they dosed him with heavy LSD. They seem to do it to a lot of people in the in the fifties and sixties. It's really kind of crazy.
0: Yeah, we should do a show on that sometime soon as well yeah it's like uh
1: man i'm surprised they didn't have like water guns full of shit and it would just zap people <laughs> i mean that's what it feels like because they were fu- they man they went through a lot of acid lafitte i read this one story about lafitte where he, he ate acid with james angleton if you're eating acid with james angleton you are a motherfucking cia rock star like for real. <laughs> <laughs> like it doesn't get much higher up the up the ladder than that period like he right. was uh he was a superstar. Yeah. And, um, and, and I honestly
0: he, don't think uh, LSD had the intended effect on society that they they actually desired. I think it no, they wanted in kind of a different direction.
1: It, yeah, they thought that it would make you um, easily susceptible to mind control and to suggestion, and they could control people with it. And it did the opposite. It freed people's minds, you know, um, yeah. After, right. after it scared the shit out of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, so... Uh oh, I don't know how to go backwards. All right, so we'll get to this. Um, so, yeah, then I find this article in the in uh, newspapers.com. It's the best 20 bucks you could ever spend. Like, you know, you want to debunk what someone says today, just go find the newspaper from like two years ago. and it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, but I found this article from October 2nd, 53, where it says, This time Lafitte was on the right side of the law. Um, basically, he goes from chucking um, Olson out the window to now he's uh, being touted as a good guy working for the FBI undercover. So uh, an undercover operative, uh, FBI uh, an undercover FBI operative with the romantic name of Jean-Pierre Lafitte told today how he posed as a smuggler to trap a gang that allegedly stole his historic paintings from a Kentucky cathedral. Lafitte, who bears the same name as a Gulf Coast uh, pirate a century ago, played the part of a ship's steward to lure the gang into the open so that the nine paintings could be recovered. So yeah, <laughs> um, he used the alias of Gus Manaletti. Gus Manaletti. what he would do is he would go in and he would commit the crimes with the guys and he would get busted with them. So they would all go to jail. So they wouldn't know he was like the rat. Um, and then he shows up for court and they call out his name, Jean-Pierre Lafitte. And as he walks up, everyone realizes that he is the Gus Manaletti who got arrested with the other guys. Uh, it was actually, there was a lot of newspapers covered this. It was, it was the national news for sure. Um, but yeah, I just thought it was kind of crazy how he goes, you know, this is how, th- this is kind of, <laughs> there is no good and bad, right? These guys do what they have to do whenever they have to do it. That's kind of how intelligence operates, right? So they might come off as the good guy one minute like this, and the next minute they're chucking somebody out a window.
0: Yeah, right. They're just doing whatever they have to do to get their, uh, their job done and the agenda yeah. finished.
1: Pretty much, pretty much. Um, and I think really when you see them going after the mob guys, I think they strategically went after certain mob guys because maybe other, their mob guys, friends needed some help, right? So I think there's a lot of that going on. Um, And when you look at people like Jack Ruby, who was an informant most of his life to the FBI, um, you know, if you're a mobster and you're an FBI informant, I can easily see, you know, you making a living off the FBI by ratting on the competition, right? So I have a feeling a lot of that went on. So this is Edward Suggs. Um, He's uh, popularly known as Jack Martin, uh, Guy Bannister's employee. Anybody familiar with the Kennedy assassination should know the name Jack Martin and know that uh, he did work for Guy Bannister. However, Al Borelli uncovered information which kind of uh, flips that entire script, so to speak. Um, This is from uh, Joan Mellon. She did some work on Jack Martin, and Jack Martin, uh, his real name was allegedly Edward Suggs, and, um, you know, I have a bit of a problem with Edward Suggs actually being uh, Jack Martin, um, or the Jack Martin who we thought he was, um, and I'll get to that here momentarily. Uh, she hit the usual dead ends. She did discover, however, numerous aliases that were attributed to Jack Martin. Those aliases were the same aliases Hank Alborelli attributed to Lafitte. Alborelli added that Edward Suggs had been admitted to a mental institution in 57 for extreme exposure to LSD. Alborelli suggests the CIA experiment that I'm in as part of their mind control program. Okay, so um, Edward Suggs, definitely a real guy. Uh, he did go by Jack Martin at times. Uh, And he probably did at one point work for uh, Guy Bannister. However, this part here in 1957, when he has the extreme exposure to LSD, he was like, uh, was he born in like the 20s? So by then he was like uh, 50, 50 years, 40, 50 years old. Yeah. If he's that old, he never did LSD before. And he fucking got dosed big time, experimented on uh, he's gone for good. He's not coming back from that. He had been admitted into a mental institution in 57. Um, there's no mention of him getting out of the mental institution. There's no documentation on any of it, on anything other than saying he was institutionalized. Um, but I can tell you with certainty, if you eat that much acid, you've never done it before, you're toast. And he's not, he did not come back from that. So what that tells me is that the Jack Martin, who everyone thought was Jack Martin, Edward Suggs was absolutely not. Uh, and if he was, he definitely was not doing private investigation work um,
0: and it 's things like that that throw so many j f k researchers in on the wrong path and it's yeah. so hard to it 's so hard to decipher the information
1: yeah yeah this um, i 'm going to go off with of Thomas Beckham, but this loops back to um, to jack martin so uh, this is thomas Beckham Thomas Beckham is a real low level kind of mafia associate CIA associate i mean I get the impression that the real young guys like this are kind of like in some sort of like a hoodlum training program where they uh, just, they start off as messengers. Hey, I need you to go meet with Marcello and give him this or something like that, right? They start off in these low level level courier positions and kind of work their way up uh, in both organizations, right? So um, Beckham was, uh, this is a picture I found of him at the airport, no one else has really ever pointed this out before. But that's him in the background um, walking with the guy with the black jacket and the glasses. And that black, the guy with the black jacket and the hat and the glasses, he's actually seen in Daily Plaza in a couple shots. Um, so next one. Uh, some people believe this guy in the background here is Thomas Beckham. Eh, I don't think so. Uh, I think it's more likely William Shelley uh, or some double, but um, it, it is l- largely speculated that that's Thomas Beckham standing back there with Oswald on the street corner. Uh, This is uh, from Joan Mellon. Uh, Beckham told me that his original handler in New Orleans was a strange character named Jack Martin. You didn't find identity cards confirming that someone is CIA, just as you didn't find Communist Party membership cards. Jim Garrison's investigation inspired CIA to conduct a trace search on Jack Martin, only for them to decide that their employee, Joseph John Martin, was not the New Orleans Jack Martin, although the documents reveal a bushel of similarities between the two. One CIA document refers to the name Jack Martin as generic, suggesting that as such, the name Jack Martin was in use by the CIA. Uh, What does this all mean? This past fall, I hired an attorney to uh, to request of the CIA all its records on this New Orleans Jack Martin, particularly his, security, a suit that is still in progress. We requested all records related to Jack S. Martin and a whole bunch of aliases. Uh, For good measure, we threw in Beckham's other CIA handler, Fred Lee Chrisman. Um, CIA acknowledged that they had three separate Jack Martin files representing three different people, all with different middle initials, right? So um, this goes back to the sharing of names, the sharing of aliases. Jack Martin is a very common name. I guarantee they were 50 agents probably using that name around the world at the time. Um, so it's kind of, uh, it is kind of generic as they indicated, uh, and definitely something that could just be passed around. And that's what these guys did. You know, these guys would work um, in a role for, you know, however long, and then they would leave, and then someone else could just slide right in, continue using that name, continue using that identity, um, and continue to do the work the last guy was doing, right? So that is not out of the question either. Um, each bore an AINS, or an agency identification number, which is used when you want to claim that the person never worked for the agency. According to CIA, there was no significance to an AIN, unlike EINs, which are rock-solid employees or contractors. Uh, Jack Martin of New Orleans, in one document, describes as CIA assets people who are either crazy, ex-convicts, jailbirds, or even worse. These categories apply both to himself and to Beckham of the three Martins the agency acknowledges CIA omits, it openly acknowledged Joseph James as its former employee. Meanwhile, Jack Martin of New Orleans used terminology like operational penetration of these groups and legitimate front, such as an intelligence unit for its cover, clearly suggesting his intelligence background. And uh, Edward Suggs did not have an intelligence background. Um, He had been arrested in Galveston in like the 1950s for doing like uh, backroom abortions. Uh, He was wanted for murder in Houston. I mean, he was definitely um, not the person that we uh, know of as Jack Martin uh, in New Orleans. Definitely not. Uh, I'm convinced that the Jack Martin in New Orleans was Lafitte. Um, But his story gets better as we move on to Dallas, which we'll get to later. Um, but just the fact that he's using these terms, cause uh, Edward Suggs was the, like the military. He got out and then he really kind of let her, he was an out al- there, really bad alcoholic. Uh, he had all kinds of problems and he did move around the country doing shady shit.
0: So, um, yeah. And I know this gets really deep, but if anyone in the chat has any questions about this, please feel free to leave it in the chat and we'll get to those as we go along. Uh, yeah. So go ahead, Corey.
1: All right. So, however, Lafitte's interfacing with the county assassinations aftermath do not end there. Earlier in '67 or '68, uh, with Alan Hughes, a CIA operative who had attended the Deep Creek lab meeting where Olson had been dosed, and the reporter James—I uh, can't see the last name—Lafitte uh, burglarized. Uh, he burgled Garrison's offices to retrieve papers relating to Shaw. Um, I believe he did that under the name of Jack Helms. That was a name that uh, I had come across. Uh, it was alleged Jack Helms burglarized the office, and uh, that was stated by Beckham actually. Um, and until I had read the Lafitte uh, this information on Lafitte some you know year ago, um, this is what connected me to that name, right? So you get multiple pieces of incidental information that aren't intent aren't there specifically to support each other but end up doing just that, right? so. That's how you can really put together what happened on things, even though it seems circumstantial, um, you know, like <laughs> 90% of people go and rot in prison over circumstantial cases. So on uh, 9 May, 63, the Harvey Oswald applied for work at the William B. Riley Coffee Company in New Orleans. Uh, the eponymous Riley was a rabid anti-communist who gave financial support, both to Sergio Arcafes-Smith's Crusade Different Cuba Committee and Ed Butler's partially CIA-funded propaganda outfit, the Information Council of the Americas. Uh, the Riley vice president, William Monahan, was a former FBI agent, was a charter member of Inca. Uh, Jim Garrison believed that Riley's was part of an intelligence apparatus, uh, a view bolstered somewhat by Jerry Patrick Hemmings' claim that William Riley had worked for the CIA for years. Yeah, it's like no joke, like, duh. You know, uh, when people you see them working at Riley Coffee Company and they're talking about it in, the, in the, the Kennedy assassination in the literature, these people did not go into work and serve people coffee. OK, they were put their names were put on the list and they uh, that was their front. You know, that's how they had money coming in. They were paid through Riley, um, basically from the CIA to Riley to Oswald and all these other guys who went on to go work at NASA. Right. So I guess the guys who went on to work in NASA, who didn't really go to work for NASA, um, they basically just got an upgrade in their pay. And so it was justified by moving to a bigger operation like that.
0: It's amazing how they could have hundreds of people uh, working different parts of this plot. And it's so compartmentalized. No one knows what each other's doing in this whole massive thing. Yeah.
1: And also reminds me like the Sopranos, you know, when you go and you muscle a guy for like a no show job. Right. Like the guy's name would be on the books and he'd be getting a paycheck, but he didn't have to show up. That's what these guys did. You know? Right. Hmm. Yeah. That, I pretty much covered that already. Um, uh, yeah. So Lafitte worked at the Riley's at the same time as Oswald. Um, Oswald, I think did have to go in like and serve coffee every once in a while. I think he wasn't high enough level to get out of that. And that's allegedly where he met. What's her name? The crazy bitch, uh, Baker. Um, who said she was like his lover. You know who I'm talking about? Have you heard about that? Judy the Very Baker? Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's a fucking nutcase. I don't know if you've ever
0: gotten into any of that in your uh, presentations, though.
1: No, she's a fucking liar. Did she know Oswald? Maybe. Maybe she did work at the place she said, but, you know, she makes it into some some big old romance. I highly doubt it. Who knows? Who the fuck knows who she was banging? There was like seven Oswalds, you know? She could have been any right. one of them. <laughs> um, all right. In 67, New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison um, arrested Clay Shaw for conspiracy and assassination of John F. Kennedy. Shaw was a prominent New Orleans businessman and leading director of the World Trade Center, a nonprofit association fostering the development of international trade, tourism, and cultural exchange. In 69, Sidney Gottlieb, um, who was the other big uh, MK Ultra guy, uh, announced at a staff meeting that the FBI had arrested Lafitte in New Orleans where he was working as the manager chef of the Plimsoll Club uh, within the World Trade Center. Uh, Shaw had praised him as the best chef in New Orleans, okay? So you have the connection here between Jean-Pierre Lafitte and Clay Shaw directly. Uh, Clay Shaw got him that job in the uh, Plimsoll Club because, you see, Lafitte was like a master chef. He had cooked for, like, Johnson and his wife. He cooked for like uh, McKeithen, who was like a higher up in um, Louisiana government at the time. Um, He was like the, he was the bomb chef. And so that was the thing that he really liked to do. And that's, and so I'm going to veer off just for a second. um, Because some of these parallels with his life, they they seem to correspond with other people in the assassination who seem like they're mysteries, like George Sandler. I'm going to go off on a little theory I have right now that I'm still trying to work out, but my gut. My gut instinct on things is usually right when it comes to Kennedy. So um, George senator allegedly was this guy who uh, worked, uh, even, he um, he lived with Jack Ruby. He moved in with Jack Ruby in November, but allegedly he had known Jack Ruby for a couple of years. He lived in the same apartment complex with him a couple of times. And then he ends up uh, moving in in early November. Um, people used to call him Jack Ruby's girlfriend and they used to joke, about, joke around about him and say that the two of them were gay, uh, but who knows, who cares? um what's important is that the information on george senator is all kinds of conflicting his statements the day of and the day after are like he didn't even know what the hell was going on like he wasn't even in uh in dallas at the time and i've ultimately come to the conclusion that based on the timing um and based on some parallels of what they said george senator's life did afterwards um like he went on to go work in all these different restaurants um for a long time after uh after the assassination And and a lot of the things that he did in locations he went, like he went back to New York, like Lafitte went back to New York. Um, There are so many parallels with what they say George Senator's life went on to be afterwards, which isn't very much. Um, It it really kind of matches with Lafitte to some degree. Um, And when you think that um, by the time of the assassination came around, allegedly Jack Martin was seen with uh, Guy Bannister um, out to lunch at the time of the assassination. Who knows, half these alibis are false. Um, But if that's the case, the real Jack Martin might have made his way, uh, or the other Jack Martin, I should say, not the real one, the other Jack Martin might have made his way back to having that lunch with Bannister in New Orleans while uh, Lafitte moved on to Dallas, where I do believe he is uh, the one who actually moved in with Jack Ruby uh, and went under the name George Senator. There's so much obfuscation around George Senator, it's really kind of crazy. He looks a lot like a guy named Tony Zappi who was the Dallas Morning News reporter that Jack Ruby went to go see on the morning of the assassination. But that wasn't Jack Ruby, it was his brother, Sam. I'm not gonna go off on that tangent. Um, but yeah, so the bottom line is, I believe that uh, Lafitte was in Dallas. Lafitte um, and why he was in Dallas, obviously it's the assassination, but I'll kind of get into specifics later on. But I'm pretty sure he was the George Senator that everyone thinks George Senator actually was. You see the body doubles and the, the tradecraft this is not bullshit. These guys are masters of this stuff. Um, they're masters. I mean, David Ferry, you know, he, he gave the story, he went to the ice skating rink. I completely debunked that entire story. I can prove that he did not go to the ice skating rink and that somebody else did under his name, right? So the use of body doubles in this stuff is, is, is their modus operandi. You know, it's not, it's not far out fiction, it's not fantasy. The reason the CIA gets away with their shit is because their fucking lies are so goddamn big that nobody could ever make that up, please. You know, you're a conspiracy guy. That's the re- reaction you get, and they count on that. They hide behind it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I was I was skeptical of the body double thing, but once you once you started mm-hmm. got getting into it, man, it's no. it's really compelling how much they mm-hmm. uh, seem to be using fucking body doubles.
1: Yeah. Yep. I don't even know what else to say about it. It is insane. But, you know, um, provably, Johnson, even uh, LBJ had a body double. Um, he had, like, a first cousin that looked like him, and he would use him to go and stand in when he didn't have to do shit, right? He had to be somewhere, but he wasn't really saying, he just had to sit in a chair. Like, he would go send his cousin in. Like, for that's real. And, like, that's how these guys operated. It's just, that's um, the MO. And once you start to discover it, because you're not going to read, you're not going to read in the CIA manual, hey, we use body doubles, right? <laughs> you're not going to. Um, but then when you start to come across the contradictions and the people being in two or three different places at the same time, you know, it's the only conclusion there is, and it's not even out of the question. It's it, it's reality. Um Yeah, so that was just connecting him there. That was actually in the newspaper. Lafitte made it into the newspaper again. Uh, um
0: I just had to bring up something something really because- uh I just had to bring up something really hilarious that popped up in the chat. Uh, somebody <laughs> apparently believes that we are being paid to make these videos because they faked Kennedy's death, and they're gonna bring him back out again soon. So, man, if if we're getting paid for this, I, I need to uh, I need to see some of that cash asap.
1: Um, I don't even acknowledge that shit. That shit is CIA propaganda. <laughs> that was that was that was come up by somebody in a fucking CIA disinformation farm. Um, so. Yeah, so Lafitte is in the paper again. See, it's kind of funny, because when I would read these articles, I would scratch my head, and I'd be like, man, like, is he really real? Like, is this real? Is he real? Like, is it an alias? Um, I could not find the damn uh, screenshots I have um, that I wanted to show tonight, but I have two different articles, one saying clearly it's an alias he used in the U.S., and the other one said uh, it was, his, re- it was uh, his real name, you know, and, it will, and they were seemingly from credible authors who would know what they're talking about. With substantiating other facts, you know, and I was like, so what the fuck is it? You can't, it can't be both. It can't be both. And what? Ha- what is it when we're seeing contradictory information? It's like warfare, right?
0: So, yeah. And that's, that's, uh, that welcome to 2020 and beyond. <laughs> yep. That's all we're seeing every day in the news now. Yeah. Contradictory if, information. If, if, contradictory information.
1: If people, out there at home over the shit going on right now aren't scared out of your fucking mind. There's something wrong with you. This is the, sp- I'm, 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 I'm more scared now. than motherfuckers in world war II thinking they they're going to get taken off of the camps. This is worse. What's going on now is fucking horrific. Kind of wish I could just snap my fingers and like go to somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> Beam me up, Scotty. There's no intelligent life down here. Um, okay, so Lafitte was also an associate of Meyer Lansky, right? So this motherfucker knew everybody, everybody, and he didn't know everybody at the low level. He knew everybody at the upper echelons, right? He knew Meyer Lansky, James Angleton, you know, he was, he just walked into a room and went right to the top guy. I mean, that's just where he, where, how he operated everywhere. It's insane. Uh, Lafitte was an associate of Meyer Lansky and worked in his drug operation, which moved heroin in the United States, uh, Pierre Lafitte's played a brokering role for many of Lansky's drug shipments into the U.S. In Alberelli's recently published book, A Terrible Mistake, uh, he indicates that Pierre Lafitte must have known Richard as Lafitte had written a book outline on his Cuba experiences listing four names. Richard Sanderland, Frank Sturgis, William Alexander Morgan, that is a crucial guy and a crucial connection to Jack Valente, um, and Herman Marx, right? So Frank Sturgis... You know, he pops up in Watergate and Watergate was not about and uh, the Democratic uh, headquarters. It was about JFK. Okay, I'm not going to get into that today, but it goes into uh, Hank Greenspun and the Greenspun letter and all that shit. It had nothing to do with bugging the uh, Democratic headquarters. What a crock of shit that story was. Um, but uh, yeah, so Frank Sturgis, like he was pretty important in the Kennedy assassination as well, but he's enough one of these guys who there's enough disinformation surrounding it that it's hard to sort out what what what's what you know he worked for the freaking most they couldn't figure out if he was like army intelligence or cia but he wasn't really cia he wasn't really army intelligence either he was probably more army intelligence than anything else but he was a freelancer for the mossad for 15 years uh from 48 all the way up until about late 50s maybe 60s um so yeah is all up in the mix he did a good job hiding his tracks he's most likely the guy who shot tippet Um, and he is most likely the one who got pulled out the back of the theater uh, when Oswald got arrested. So, um, uh, the introduction to this chapter according to Al Borelli states, never was there a more brave and fascinating band of men than than those I met in Cuba's budding revolution there. So, here we have the connection through Cuba, because it seems like at different points in time, you have these same people focused in different areas of the world. Um, You know, you have Europe World War II, you have Cuba, you have Haiti, um, you have Algeria, Algeria became really important. We'll do We'll talk about Algeria one of these days. Uh, but Algeria was a big uh, kind of cause friction between the French and the Israelis and the Israelis weren't having it. So they just started trying to whack Charles de Gaulle. Um, so, John Sparito had served as a special employee for the United States Federal Bureau of Narcotics, and he fought in the Cuban Revolution against Batista. He joined the second national front of Escambri under command of uh, Eloy Gutierrez Minoyo, reaching the rank of captain. Yeah, so you get the same players just turned up over and over again in different situations, right? One minute, they're murdering Frank Olsen, throwing him out a window. Next thing you know, he's having beers with uh, Frank Sturgis in Cuba, and they're all you know, and connected. And he's connected to the uh, Corsican Mafia, so... Um, and there were no Corsican assassins, okay, in Daly Plaza. All right, people can stop uh, believing that propaganda. Um, now they did import about half a dozen Corsican assassins to come in through Montreal, uh, through Quebec. Um, they had a bunch come in through Canada, down to the U.S., and just to come and hang out. The uh, it's kind of funny, kind of off topic, but the CIA, uh, using their connections overseas, they n- no shit had probably 30 to 40 genuine assassins in Dallas and Texas at the time. Now, why the fuck would you do that? You do that so when they start looking for what assassins were in town at the time and they see there's like 40 of them, where, how long do you think it's going to take them to figure out who was doing what? And you know what? Those guys were all the cover. They had them come in and just wander around. Like Jean Suetra and Michael Mertz, actually two of them, because they usually just share an alias. Um, two of them were in Texas. One was in Fort Worth. He was seen. At the time of the assassination, he has a real alias. I mean, a real alibi. So he was definitely not involved, but he was told to be there anyway. You know, they told so many. And then when you add the mob, uh, the mob assassins, holy shit, man, you probably had 50 assassins in Texas. You know, good luck trying to catch that FBI.
0: Yeah, it's kind of Um, of genius to have, uh, you know, all these, you know, 50 people wandering around shady characters that could be doing something nefarious at the time. And, you know, all occurring at the same time. So.
1: Right, and this, this, this is really important. That's what the CIA did. That was their role in the assassination, okay? That was their role, misdirection, um, just getting you to know, spin your gears. You know, they knew that they, if they flooded the area with assassins, and that's just one example. Like when Oswald was allegedly down in uh, Mexico City, they sent like three other Oswalds. <laughs> they sent an Oswald with two S's, O-S-S-W-A-L-D, to hand out flyers on college campuses, uh, and they sent like a, a Hispanic guy, Osvaldo, right? And they sent him down to Mexico City. And the FBI found that. And I found that in the FBI records, right? So why the hell are you sending like three, four Oswalds down to Mexico City? To, because, right? Just to throw them off. Um, but also, it leaves a fingerprint. They kind of see four Oswalds coming across the border, and they fucking know what's going on, right? They know where to look away now, because the FBI's job is to clean up for the CIA. Um, and Albrelli's recently published book, A Terrible Mistake, he indicates that Pierre Lafitte must have known Richard as Lafitte had written a book outline on his Cube experiences. Uh, oh, yeah, I already read that fucking part. Um, that's him at the Plimpsaw Club. Okay, this is where it starts to get interesting for me, and this is where it starts to become a real gray area. Um, so I believe, based on the evidence that I've seen, that uh, Jean Pierre Lafitte is the legendary QJ Wynn. Uh, many people have tried to identify QJ Wynn. Um, many people, like, including myself, believe for a very long time that Q.J. Wynn was the actual assassin on the Knoll, and he was like the badass assassin who went everywhere, although um, there was some contradictory information indicating that Otto Scorzani was Q.J. Wynne, And you know what? I believe both are correct, um, because Q.J. Wynn, I believe, around the time of the assassination, um, that handle kind of got passed down, because back when... Um, World War II ended and we cut the deal with uh, Reinhard Galen. Around the same time, um, they kind of, uh, the CIA cut deals with Otto Skorzeny and the Mossad cut deals with Otto Skorzeny. And Otto Skorzeny was Adolf Hitler's bodyguard. He was, he was like Adolf Hitler's favorite soldier, right? The most Aryan or whatever the fuck. But he loved him to death. And so when he gets out, he gets recruited to be like this badass assassin. And he, he went off and killed a whole shitload of people. Um, it is speculated that he actually killed Nikola Tesla um there's all kinds of speculation on him who the hell knows what's true and what's not but um it is confirmed that he worked for the Mossad, and so um it's kind of interesting because i believe that he was qj win he was the first qj win and i believe that that title um when the zr rifle project was kind of like um re-sparked because they, they came out with it and it was kind of like uh that was what they used covert operations to take out leaders. It was executive action. It was taking out the biggest, you know, the presidents and the prime ministers of countries. And so um, I believe that handle did get passed down to Lafitte from um, Otto Scorzani when they revived the ZR rifle uh, project because it did go away for a bit. I don't know if it was because it pissed somebody off or I don't know what the situation with it was, but it was kind of shelved and then brought back. Um, And really I kind of got, I kind of fell into a little bit of a, um, a little rabbit hole on it. And I really felt that Q.J. Wynn, was, that was just like obfuscation because William uh, Harvey said that it was a recruitment project to recruit assassins. And I was like, yeah, that's bullshit. Because um, I wanted Q.J. Wynn to be the assassin. It would have made the assassination like the ultimate, whoa, like, like storybook kind of ending. And um, the ending we got even better. So, but yeah, I thought that Q.J. Wynn was the assassin, but he's not. It is more than, uh, more than likely the recruitment program, as William Harvey said. Uh, I've found more uh, evidence to back that up than it being the um, assassin itself. Um, but then you have like Q.J. Wynn and other doc. I have other documents referencing like the assassination of Patrice Lumumba in the Congo um, and a couple other ones. And um, the thing that really ties the feet to Q.J. Wynn more than anything else, is uh, the fact that they keep referring to his underworld connections with the Corsican Mafia. And they talk about his behavior being sporadic. And uh, you know the, the descriptions of him and the things they talk about him and how they discuss him, it completely matches with uh, Lafitte's life. And um, so there was one alias that they say that uh, Q.J. Wynn used of uh, Mankell, uh, Jose Mankell. Well, one of uh, Lafitte's aliases was confirmed to be Rene Mankell, and so you know, there's just there's no slam dunk, there's no like um, you know, pointing red arrow, blinking, saying that's that's the answer. Um, you have to piece together these little these little tidbits and into a cohesive narrative, you know. Um, so this document here, I think, is pretty interesting. This one I grabbed because it was connected to ZR Rifle, not so much Lafitte, although I believe Lafitte um, did meet with this person. We're gonna talk for a minute about Max, um, who was a hitman. Um, Do I have another page on this one? Let me see. Uh, No. Okay. So basically um, you have a hitman named Max and he was connected to a guy named Phil the Stick in New York, he was a mobster. And so he gets connected to Santos Tropicante and then Santos Tropicante introduces Max to Frank Sturgis. And then Frank Sturgis and Max go down to No Name Key, which is where a lot of these guys were practicing. Um, and, you know, there's when you're talking about a hit name named Max, this only popped up twice. One time was when Otto Scorzani said that the, uh, the shooter on the grassy knoll went by the name of Max, and he went by the name of Zed. Um, And this was one of the first, after I read that, um, uh, this was one of the first documents I found that referred to Max as the hitman who was not identified or known to even the people who were in, uh, or were referenced in this document. But um, basically, I believe that Max, the hitman here, is Jack Valente. Um, I need more substantiation, but it fits all the other pieces of the puzzle it's one of the weakest links I have, but the association, the time that he's in Cuba. Hazel, chill out. Um, the overlap in the similarities and places and associates, they, it, uh, it just overlaps too much for me uh, to be coincidence. And um, so I believe that Max, that he talks about here, who actually ends up going down to, uh, I think, like Venezuela to take out Trujillo uh, or the leader there, you know, there's an interesting uh, tale about how when they went down there to take out Trujillo, um, they get in a car accident, the car flips over a couple times, and there is an incident uh, with Jack Valente where um, it says that he was in a car accident and broke his arm, um, and he was riding with the mayor of uh, Houston at the time. Um, I need to go back and correspond. If I can correspond these dates to April of 61 or around mid-61, um then i'll have more evidence that valente got into the accident broke his arm the same time that max did down in uh venezuela right so uh that's one part of uh, the investigative process is just like you know trying to compare tidbits and, and compare dates and um yeah uh this is this is some pretty deep stuff no one's ever made these kind of connections before in reference to max or Valente. But uh, man, I'm going through that file piece by piece, and uh, it might take me a couple of more years, but um, I will know everything there is to know about Mr. Valente. Okay, so here is where I'm going to um, I'm going to take the opportunity to veer off and show some other very interesting connections. Um, Lafitte uh, basically, so Lafitte rips this guy off on a deal. <laughs> like this is part of the scumbag shit that he did. He rips a guy off on a deal for four hundred thousand dollars worth of diamonds out of South Africa. Um, he was a scam artist, right? He was, uh, you know, FBI agent and the hero, but he was also a murderer and, uh, you know, um, uh, a scumbag (laughs) pretty much right. Uh, probably has some mental disorders based on his, uh, history with his mom being a hooker. If that's even a true story, you know, uh, as an investigator who wants to know the real answers to this stuff, he has been the most frustrating person, uh, finding and correlating information on without getting a lot of contradictory shit. That leads me to the inclination that most of it's made up, Um, but uh, who knows? But his lawyer, um, when he eventually gets arrested, he gets arrested right out of the Plimsoll Club. They jacked him right out of uh, Clay Shaw's Club uh, in New Orleans, which I think is kind of funny. But um, his lawyer is a guy named uh, Bernard Fensterwald, and Bernard Fensterwald is a real scumbag, and he's a name that most people have never heard of, but he pops up time and time and time again um you know he's connected to the mob he's connected to the cia he's connected to the Moss- mossad he's <laughs> connected to the fucking israelis i mean this like these guys it's like the identify scumbags who are willing to work with anybody and like all these different groups just latch onto this one guy it's really kind of fun but bernard Spencerwald, very important person um he's been involved in so many things that were crucial in american history um Particularly as they pertain to things like the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, and the mob at the time. Uh, but um, m- maybe I'll do a show on him at some point. But um, his background—I'll tell you a little about Mr. Fensterwald. From fifty-one to fifty-six, Fensterwald worked for the State Department as an assistant legal advisor. Uh, this included defending State Department employees accused by Joseph McCarthy of being members of the American Communist Party. In 57, Fensterwald was hired by Thomas C. Hennings as an investigator for the Senate Committee on Constitutional Rights. In the 60s, he was chief counsel for the Senate Judiciary Committee under Senator Edward V. Long. Uh, Fensterwald once implied that Long was being blackmailed by the FBI. Uh, In 68, 69, Fensterwald and Richard E. Spray founded a private sector committee to investigate assassinations, which primarily concerned itself with the Kennedy assassination. In the late 1970s, He was Congressman Thomas N. Downing's favorite to become chief counsel for the House Select Committee on Assassinations, but withdrew himself from consideration after objection from Congressman Henry B. Gonzalez. In 1984, Fensterwald and James Lassar, with whom Fensterwald had represented James Earl Ray, founded the Assassination and Archives Research Center. Okay, now this is pretty crucial because... This guy, Finsterwald, is a scumbag, right? He's not on the side of justice. He works for the mob. He works for the CIA. He works for Israel. Um, he is one of these attorneys who just is a, a centerpiece of controversy, right? Definitely never, ever, ever going to let the truth about the assassination come out, all right? Because all of his clients are the guys who he'd be protecting by creating a committee to investigate assassinations, right? So Richard E. Sprague, actually, he was legit. He um, was definitely interested in the truth. How he got with Fensterwald, I have no idea. Um, But Fensterwald was a scumbag. And now you know why none of the committees that they've had in the 70s or the one in the 90s, none of them ever fucking get any answers because they all are put together by people whose purpose of putting it together was to prevent the truth from coming out, okay? They're all fucking shams, just like the 9-11 Commission and fucking Nuremberg and all these fucking bullshit committees. You know, Where's the committee on the fucking liberty, right? Israel attacks the Liberty, 1967. Johnson was in on it, right? To this day, never been a congressional inquiry on why that happened, right? Man, I fucking hate those guys. Um, he was also counseled to Watergate plumber James McCord. One of Fencer more notable cases um, was his unsuccessful defense of Watergate criminal James McCord. He was also connected to other characters on the fringes of Watergate. Uh, John Paisley, who was a CIA liaison to the White House plumbers, was Fensterwald's friend and neighbor. When, Paul's, uh, when Paisley died under suspicious circumstances, his widow hired Fensterwald to investigate. Prior to the Watergate burglaries, both Fensterwald and McCord employed a private investigator named Lou Russell. Um, so, yeah, total scumbag, and he's the guy behind the uh, one of the assassination committees that went nowhere. Very, very frustrating, because that's how these fucks operate. You know, when you have like a real movement, let's say we had a real movement in this country for something good, right? The split second it's on the radar, it's infiltrated and taken over, right? That's how, yeah. the, that's how they work.
0: Yeah. The in, I mean, you can go back to the infiltration from Project Paperclip. We integrated all the Nazis into our system. Uh, they became friends, you know, with CIA, the mob, Mossad, all working together for uh, their global domination plots. And we still see the same players today.
1: Yep. Um, And so, you know, he had been, Fencer Wall had been an attorney for James O'Ray. But James O'Ray had another attorney named Percy Foreman. And Foreman represented clients, including General Edwin Walker, right? Edwin Walker, who allegedly Oswald shot at, although Oswald never shot at him. Uh, Charles Harrelson, who has a son named Woody Harrelson, that everybody knows. Charles Harrelson, people like to think that he was the tall tramp. He was not. Um, I have not found any links to him, uh, and the, uh, Kennedy assassination unless he was using some alias and was a total nobody. Um, Candy Mosler. Okay. It's Candy Mosler. We're going to have to do, I'm going to have to do a show on the, mur- on the Mosler murder. It was a, it is fascinating. And the connections to Kennedy and everything else are all there. It's going to, it's, that's a good one. Um, and various organized, king, uh, criminal crime kingpins. Jack Ruby requested that Foreman represent him after he shot Lee Harvey Oswald right? So look at all these scumbags are calling uh, Percy Foreman or Fensterwald. And there's a whole bunch of these other lawyers who are all shitbags, work for, you know, all these uh, scumbag fucking organizations. Um, Okay, but Jack Ruby, he did not actually get uh, Fensterwald. He got Melvin Belli, okay? And uh, thanks to Gary Ween, who personally witnessed... uh, melvin belli uh, interacting with Mickey Cohen and Menish and Began and getting prostitutes back at melvin belli 's house right so you see the connections here to Israel. you see the connections here to the CIA and the Mafia. they run through all of this shit right that 's all there is there is nothing outside those three at all um, so yeah, so that 's the connection there um, and Percy Foreman, of course, was also the lawyer for Vincent Caltigron Jr. at the Mosler murder. Okay, so I'm gonna have to tell you a little bit about this muscle murder. So basically, um, Vincent Calderone, who is Raoul, who is the short tramp in Daily Plaza. You can see all about that in um, uh, what was my movie called? What was the, the thing called? Oh, the Hijacking, hijacking of, America. of America. Yeah, there you go. Um, so yeah, he was Raoul. He was the short tramp. Brother-in-law to Jack Valenti, key figure in the assassination. And Percy Foreman was his lawyer for the Mosler case in 66. And the Mosler case basically had this old dude who's probably like, I don't know, 60, 70 years old. He's living with um, Vincent calte in Miami, okay? They're roommates. Um, he, he's a homosexual. It seems like everybody in the damn assassination is a homosexual, and so Basically, he gets murdered. They find his body and uh, all stabbed to death like 50 times or something. And so they end up arresting and charging his wife, who was like 50 years younger, and her boyfriend, who she was banging, right? So they get arrested, put on trial for it. but living with uh, Vincent Caltegarone when it happened. And so Vincent Caltegarone, they tried to hide. They they didn't want him to have anything to do with this. And so it was like months into the trial. Then all of a sudden, they discover Vincent Caltegarone was the roommate. Right? Caught a bunch of people lying about it and stuff. And so then he uh, has to go and testify. Right? And his lawyer for that was Percy Foreman, who also represented James Earl Wright. And this is fucking Raul, who set up James Earl Ray, Right? (laughs) You see that connection there? And these fucking scumbag lawyers are are like the, 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 the center of the wheel. Right? They connect all these people. Man, it's sad. And Percy Foreman, man, what a scumbag he is because he knew James already didn't do shit because he knew Raul did it because he represented Raul in this case. He had known him for years. He told the Greta Graybow that he had known the real Raul for years, you know? So, and um, I believe that is it. Um, I ran out of time because I suck with time management. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and that is that. And I can't end screen share because I don't know how to do it.
0: There we go. All right. We got you. Yep. All right. Very good. So, uh, so, so yeah, the ahead. story
1: of Jean-Pierre Lafitte, uh, I really wanted to cover because I do believe he is one of these ghosts. He is one of these guys who plays a, an absolutely amazing, uh huge part uh, in, in American history. And nobody has ever heard of him. Uh, if you're familiar with Jean-Pierre Lafitte, you are definitely a gangster. And I give you props. Because um, he is like third and fourth level, you know, Kennedy stuff. You don't even come across him in Kennedy. You come across him in Olson, in the Olson case, right? And from there, you start to see the connections to Kennedy. And you start to see how he's there, but he's not there. And the aliases cover it up. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a wild ride. Like, don't waste your time reading fiction. <laughs> There's no point. The shit that you read in, these, in, in Kennedy and all throughout the, the FBI files and CIA files is better than any fiction you're ever going to read. It's exciting, and it's thrilling, and it's like a choose-your-own-adventure story because you can go wherever you want with it. Man, yeah, I and freaking love it.
0: It is so much information. You need to actually – you probably have to watch it twice just to absorb all the information in it. Um, and like I said, to rewatch it, it's going to be available exclusively on our social media site. Uh, we'll leave the live stream up uh, for a little while for everybody to get caught up. But just go to ForbiddenKnowledge.news, sign up for free. You'll be able to see the video for free. You'll be able to join our uh, censorship-free social media network, uh, post whatever you want there. And also, you can get access to our premium video site. We've got plenty of content there already. We've got some awesome content coming up soon as well. Um, Corey, anything else to add before we close out tonight?
1: Yes, fuckers. Go to my website, CoreyHughes.org pre-order my Kennedy book it's called a warning from history and it is going to be the definitive book on the assassination it'll probably be like eight or nine hundred pages long if not longer if not multiple books but um I'm pre-ordering it you can pre-order it for 25 bucks you get a digital copy in advance and I'm doing a couple limited edition versions I'm doing a limited edition of 100 uh paperback and I'm doing a limited edition of 25 signed and numbered hardcover editions also if you're a baller so um that's that, org, and uh, that's it.
0: All right. Well, you heard man. go pre-order that damn book. Uh, thanks again, Corey. Thank you, everyone, for joining us, and until next time, everyone, you have an excellent evening. All right. We're done. How long was that? Was that an hour? Uh, that was a little over an hour, about an hour and oh. 15 minutes or so.
1: Awesome. I don't ever want to do
0: under an hour. Under an hour is no good. Yeah. (laughs) All right.